Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Christmas every year, Father. Thank you for this celebration. Many of us know, Father, that this is not uh, the time of year when Jesus was probably born. We know that this holiday can probably trace many of its traditions back to things that are not about you. And, and be that as it may, Father, I am so thankful that you have redeemed this for yourself. You've taken this time of year and all of the pagan traditions that accompany it, and you have wrapped them up with a bow and delivered them to the world as a celebration of your son so that we would have the opportunity every year to be reminded of such an important event, of such a, an amazing gift, and that we would have, through that reminder, an opportunity to share this news with others every year, lest we forget it. Thank you, Lord, for the fun of it, for the children and their excitement over gifts. Thank you, Father, for the food, for the family, for the fact that we get time off from school and work and so many little things we take for granted, Father, that have all come to pass because of your son, because of the grace that you delivered in the form of a child. And thank you, Father, that we have been called to understand these things, to know these things, to follow you in faith, to not be those who would walk aside the manger, so to speak, and look at it with unbelieving eyes. But thank you, Father, that we can, we can stare into the eyes of Christ in that manger scene and, and see the life of God presented to us in his form. We thank you, Lord, for that gift. Let our celebration this day and in this week to come honor you through what our families say and do concerning our faith and for the way we may treat others in the course of this time of year and all the year. And thank you, Father, for the word made flesh on that day and residing even now in our hearts through the Spirit and present before us on the pages of our Bible, that we would come to know you not just by how we experience you, but by how we understand you and your commandments and your expectations, your character, your nature, all that you offer to us in your word. And through the pages of chapter 8 of First Corinthians, Father, I thank you that, that Paul will speak truth that we can understand even now, so many thousand years after he wrote it, truth that's still relevant for us today. Show us, Father, how to apply it. Open our hearts to receive it. Let us glorify you through how we keep it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we teach our children math or science or whatever it is in school, the best teachers will always emphasize key principles over the memorization of questions to answers, etc. If you teach someone just to memorize a specific answer to a specific question, then in reality, they probably haven't learned very much. As long as the questions don't change, they can parrot back the answers that you've taught them to memorize. But if any of the variables in the circumstances change even slightly, then that student's going to be lost. Because if they haven't learned the underlying principles, it's like a new puzzle every time the factors change and they can't solve it. But if you teach a student underlying principles, the basic timeless truths that they need to know, then you have equipped them to solve any kind of problem that comes along that's based on those principles. And so that's why teachers will often say, don't memorize these facts, learn the background, learn to understand the principles. Now, that method of teaching is especially important when you're learning scripture, because the Bible uses facts and people and circumstances and so on to explain basic principles of who we are and who God is, so that we might learn how to become less like we are and more like God is. And Paul is following this very method as he teaches the church in Corinth. 
And as he answers the questions that they've posed to him on the first topic that he was addressing on the first question that he was posed, the question of marriage, Paul offered three basic principles that hold true at any time in any marriage, in any circumstance. We can summarize these very quickly. The first principle was marriage is a one flesh relationship and it cannot be broken by the efforts of men. Therefore, we honor marriage for life. The second principle was that each man or woman is to remain in the condition in which they are called. That is, a Christian conversion does not compel us to seek some new social status on earth. Rather, it just demands that we seek after the kingdom while we live here on earth. And then lastly, Paul counsels that singleness is to be given serious consideration as a lifestyle for a Christian in light of the coming distress, in light of the advantages that it offers in serving Christ. So those are the three principles. And I can go to several different kinds of marriages or different kinds of circumstances, and I can reason out how to behave properly in those circumstances if I understand these principles. Now, those principles guide the understanding of marriage, but Paul also gave a few restrictions along the way within that umbrella of guidance. He said there is liberty for some things and then there's not liberty in other cases. That's Paul's pattern. He's going to repeat that pattern now throughout this whole letter and throughout the rest of all of these issues. So he's always going to answer a specific question with guiding principles, complete with some specific constraints on liberty so that the answer provides the fullness of God's expectation. Let's look at that pattern now with the second issue. The second issue, which is chapters 8 through 10, so we have three chapters to deal with this second issue. The second issue is concerning eating meat sacrificed to an idol. Now, obviously, with three chapters to cover this topic, there's going to take some time for us to examine all that Paul says. But immediately, I suspect some of us might start to think that there can't be a lot of relevance in this section of the letter for us. For one thing, I doubt many of us sacrifice to idols or have close friends who do. Secondly, even if such a thing still does exist somewhere, and I'm sure it does, the odds that we're going to encounter a possible situation in which the food we eat has been previously sacrificed to an idol, the chance of that is pretty minimal. And so for us, we start to wonder, what's in it for me? We'll go back to where I started. Paul is going to respond to this question by teaching on a principle, actually on a set of principles, that transcend the specific question of meat sacrificed to idols. So even as we see him deal with the specific concerns of meat sacrificed to idols, even as we watch him do that, pay attention to the fact that he's going to generalize this to principles that are every bit as true for you and I today as they were back in that day. I'm going to read the entire chapter in one setting. And the reason is because it is short and because there is so much that's said in this chapter that works with itself, within itself, that if I separate it out too much, we'd lose the thread. So I'm going to read chapter 8, verses 1 through 13 at once. Let's go there now, and let's see how Paul sets forth the principle. Verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, well, he is known by him. Therefore... Concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, 
Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So in this chapter, Paul sets up the principle. In the next chapter, chapter 9, he uses himself as an example. And then in the third chapter, chapter 10, he addresses the specific issue of their situation of eating meat sacrificed to idols by applying his example and the principle to their situation. So we're setting it up the whole argument with this chapter. And as we begin this topic, we need some background on Greek culture if we're going to get to the root of Paul's concerns. All ancient Greek culture was replete with idol worship which largely took place in buildings called temples, much like churches, I guess, of today in that sense. Pagan culture practiced regular services in these temples, and these services included usually an elaborate meal as a part of their worship service. These meals were common not only as a part of regular weekly or monthly observance, but they were also part of state festivals. So like today, we have government holidays associated with Christian events like Christmas, In this case, well, they as well had government sponsored holidays on their calendar, which then obligated Greek society to go into these temples and celebrate and have these big meals. And then, of course, the private celebrations happened alongside as well. The pagan worship ritual surrounding the meal typically had three parts to it. First, part of the ritual was the preparation of the sacrifice. You know, you would say mumbo jumbo over the animals and you would hocus pocus and do whatever you did. Then the animal was ready for the sacrifice. Then following that ritual, the animal was sacrificed in the temple. Then lastly, the meat of that sacrifice of that animal became, I guess, the centerpiece of the meal of the feast. They ate the meat. Obviously, this process took some time. It took a few hours. So the entire event was a big, long social experience. So the meat of the sacrifice was the centerpiece of this ritual. And the meat itself was commonly divided into three portions. The first, a small portion of this meat, would be burned, totally destroyed, in other words, as a offering to the pagan god on whose behalf this whole temple was set up. The second part of the meat, which is also a small portion, would be cooked properly as if it were going to be eaten. And then it would be set at an empty table in honor of this supposed God who was thought to be in attendance at that ritual, even though you couldn't see anything or hear anything, of course. And so you have this empty table with a little portion of meat to be given to the God, and it just sat there. And then, of course, the third part of the meat, which is the majority of it, 
was served to the attendants and to the worshipers in the temple as part of the meal. And that entire event was to honor the God who is presumed to be present. The meals themselves were an intense and important social occasion for the participants. It was the highlight event in Greek culture, like a Super Bowl party today or like a Christmas party today. Anything that you consider a big shindig, that, that's what these things were, only they were regular events. Most, if not all of the Christians, who, the, the ones who are now Christian in Corinth, most of them, if not all of them, would have attended these gatherings on a regular basis as a part of living in Corinth previously. It was the, probably their primary social experience. In fact, one commentator once said these temple meal services were the ubiquitous restaurant of their day. If they wanted to go out to eat, it was to the temple. That was the country club experience if you were in Greek society. So at these celebrations, the worshipers themselves supplied the animals that became the meat for the sacrifice. That was their personal gift to the God as part of that service. So in, in the same way that we might drop a check in the box on the way out the door, they brought a goat or whatever animal they wanted to bring. I'm, I prefer our method, frankly. So think, think of it as like BYOM. So it's a big party. Bring your own meat. Consequently, the amount of available meat in one of these temple services far exceeded the appetite of those who came to eat it. I mean, if every family is bringing a whole animal, there's going to be a lot more meat in there than that family can eat. So after the service was concluded, the temple attendants, the priests, etc., of this temple, would take all of that extra meat and they would sell it in the local Greek marketplace called an agora. And the sale of that meat in the agora provided the bulk of the income for the temple and for the attendance in the temple. Now, the general Greek population shopped for all their daily necessities in the Agora, including their needs for meat, browsing all the meat shops in the Agora, stocked with not only the meat that came from the temples, but meat that was sold by just general butchers from wherever. And all of this meat is mixing in the Agora. Under those circumstances, it's going to be really hard if you're a shopper to tell the difference between the meat that had been sacrificed previously to a temple idol from the everyday ordinary meat that was non-sacrificed meat. But those who went to the temple typically brought the best animals as their gifts to the God because they didn't want to displease the God by offering a, a lame or a sick animal. So the best meat in the Agora was typically the meat that came from the temples. And it commanded the best price. So if you were a picky shopper, then you naturally would gravitate to the better cuts of meat in the Agora, which increases your chances of selecting meat sacrificed to idols. You see the problem now, right? Because of all of these Greek practices, if you're a Christian now living in Greek society in Corinth, you faced a couple of challenges, at least, associated with this whole system of meat production and meat sacrifice to idols. The first issue is a Christian would undoubtedly still be tempted to go back into the temples and participate in those temple services, not because of any faith issue, not because of what the idol meant to you or because of any confusion over who God is, but merely out of the social connection and out of the good food and out of the fact that it was enjoyable. And it was just the whole social circle of these people was centered in that event, largely. And as a result, these were the center of joy and social connection in Greek society. 
So if you cut off all attendance at these functions, that meant isolating yourself to a large degree from family, from friends, from the whole societal structure you took for granted before that. That's where you get the dilemma from. That's why this is a dilemma. It's, it's this huge consequence of, of faith now causing you to have to choose between the world you knew and all the joy that it brought and isolation within this small little new Christian community. And that's a hard choice. I mean, it's easy for us to sit back now and take this objective look at it and say, well, they should have done it anyway. They know the truth. They shouldn't have to go into those temples and blah, 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 blah. Well, it's easy to say that, isn't it? Not easy to do it. That was the first dilemma. The second issue for this church was shopping. Shopping in the local Agora. Trying to find meat that satisfied their new concerns as Christians. I mean, how does a Christian avoid the temple meat? Perhaps we shouldn't eat meat at all. And that's what some in the church in Corinth had begun to argue. This is the the essence of the question that was being posed to Paul. Do we have to be concerned with eating meat sacrificed to idols? Not just in the sense of the temple service, but in this larger sense of trying to filter our food supply so as to avoid being tainted by this so-called pagan meat. Do we have to abstain from meat altogether, Paul? Those issues are at the heart of these questions. And in this chapter and in the chapters to follow, Paul's going to address both of these concerns, both their participation in the temple services and their consumption of this meat supply that comes out of the temples. These are two different issues. He deals with both of them. And as we consider Paul's response, it becomes immediately apparent in the passage I read that the first situation, that is, of entering the temples, is of far greater concern to Paul than the issue of eating the meat. He'll look at both of these, as I said, as we go deeper. But look at the principles he sets up. Paul teaches the principle of Christian living here, rather than just answering the question about the circumstances. He starts with this well-known Greek saying, or this Greek phrase, we all have knowledge. Now that means nothing to us because we don't get the sense of what the Greeks meant by that. The meaning of the slogan is that there are some things everyone should understand. And The way this was applied was to say, we don't have to suffer the ignorance of fools. We don't need to accommodate someone's ignorance if that ignorance is self-imposed and unjustified. To put it bluntly, just because you're too stupid to know something that everyone else knows doesn't mean I have to live my life in some way to accommodate your stupidity. We all have knowledge. We should all know these things. And if I hear an amen, then you're you're not getting the point. Let me just, we need to wait on that just a minute. So Paul says, yes, we all have knowledge. But then he says, knowledge makes someone arrogant, whereas love for another is edifying. In other words, if we're not careful, we can become arrogant and therefore become unloving to others in the body of Christ because of something we think we know that they should also know, too. Because of some level of knowledge we have obtained as Christians that we believe should be common knowledge And yet, because it's not common knowledge and it impinges on us because it's not common knowledge, we become arrogant and we say, you know, it's your own problem, not my problem. We can puff up our pride and then give ourselves license, or so we think, to treat them with contempt because they should have known this already. We all know that feeling, right? To be found to be on the outs when someone else knows something and there's that inside joke we're not a part of, you know, and you're wondering, how did I miss this? I didn't realize this was so common knowledge. And then they start to make fun of us and mock us and you feel left out and you feel ostracized. I mean, we get the feeling. We all know exactly what that's like. Christians do this to one another, potentially, if we start to think 
that our knowledge gives us rights to look at others with contempt. Paul says in verse two that the one who believes they have mastered some topic of spirituality, they actually show themselves to be a fool by that attitude. When it comes to understanding God and to understanding our way of pleasing him, our call to live a life that pleases him, there will always be far more we don't know than what we have learned. Imagine, for example, an undergraduate student claiming to have mastered mathematics or to have mastered physics or to have mastered medicine. In fact, imagine a graduate student saying that. What would be harder to understand, do you think, science or the author of science? Which one is harder to understand? I think it's obvious that it's harder to understand God, the author of science, than it is to understand what he created, that is, science. And yet, if we can't even master science or any aspect of it in our lifetimes, what makes us think we come even close to mastering an understanding of God himself? It's self-evident. We don't even get close. And in fact, the pursuit of knowledge, knowledge of God or anything else, the pursuit of it cannot lead us to God or make us more like God. In verse three, Paul says that the true pursuit of God and of godliness is found only through a sincere love for God, not through some pursuit of the knowledge of him. And if we love God truly, then you're also going to demonstrate love for God's people. Because to love God is to love his people. And John himself says that if we do not love the brothers, we show we don't love God. The love of God is not in us. Therefore, the Christian is called to make love for our brother and our sisters a higher goal than some self-empowerment by the pursuit of greater knowledge. Now, this is something I think Bible churches are classically prone to doing. And I don't mean that we have done it. I just mean in the stereotype Bible churches, churches that put a strong emphasis on biblical instruction, which is not a bad thing, but it can lead to a negative consequence in the culture, which is that we make the pursuit of this knowledge preeminent to the exclusion of the living of it, particularly in the case of showing love to one another, that by our knowledge, we become arrogant and by our arrogance, we have excuse to treat others with contempt should they not match our level of knowledge. And Paul's point is, you don't even know what you think you know. You're not even close to knowing anything worth bragging about. You're so far away from knowing anything you think you know that you're at the beginning of a process, not the end. And as a result, you have no basis for arrogance. Meanwhile, if we were like that, we'd be missing the point of all that knowledge, which is to show love, to learn about God so we can be more like him. So what is this knowledge that the church has that's leading them to be arrogant? Well, this is the issue. So Paul acknowledges in verses four through six. That an informed Christian, a knowledgeable Christian, knows full well that there is no such thing as an idol. Some in the church have said, we know, based on our teaching, based on our understanding of God, that there is no such thing as an idol. Now, obviously, idols exist in the very simple sense that a pagan can invent one and set it up on a little altar somewhere, and there it is. There's the idol. I mean, we know that that's true. And Paul even says in verse 5, Yes, there are so-called idols, and they exist in many forms throughout the unbelieving world. So he's not saying that the actual idol itself doesn't exist. Of course, what he's saying is that you and I, the informed Christian, the mature Christian, we know that behind that little stone or wood figure, there is no real God. There is no supernatural being 
It is nothing more than the work of human hands, and it sits there deaf and mute and still because it doesn't have life. It's nothing. That's what he means, and we know that. Paul says the Christian understands there's only one true God who made all things and who called us to himself. The rest of it, all the hocus pocus, all the mumbo jumbo, all the little carved figurines and whatever comes with it, all of that are figments of the unbeliever's deceived mind. Therefore, we know that anyone who takes meat and puts it in front of one of these carved figures and says all the mumbo jumbo and hocus pocus and waves the hands and puffs the smoke or whatever else they do, nothing has actually happened. Nothing has taken place that is of any significance spiritually. Our knowledge removes from us any sense of guilt when we eat that meat because we know that the whole thing of sacrificing it to an idol was all a big charade anyway. It's just meat. It was meat before they did it. It's meat after they did it. Nothing happened. And when I eat it, I don't experience any guilt or any sense of loss. I don't feel like I'm injuring my relationship with God because God and I both know this is all nonsense. And he knows I know him and he knows I'm eating this because it's just meat. That's the knowledge that frees us. There's liberty in that knowledge because it takes us out of a situation in which we would otherwise be confused about what it means to do what we're doing. Then Paul steps back from that issue. And he gets to the principle at the heart of this question in verse 7. And he reminds the Corinthian church, not everyone in your church has broken free from their pagan roots. Not everyone understands this the way you do. Not everyone sees that meat in a harmless, innocent way that you might or that Paul might. He says in verse 7, not all men have this knowledge, the knowledge that pagan gods are powerless and, and imaginary. And what he means by not all men is he means men in the church. And that becomes evident as you read further into the verse. Paul explains that they were previously accustomed to idols. And then he says, until now, you notice that that phrase until now demonstrates to us that he's talking about people who have come out of pagan idolatry and into the church. But they're babes in Christ. I mean, that term babe in Christ, Paul uses it elsewhere. It's such a perfect picture. They're babies. They're at the very beginnings. They're in a fragile state. They're trying to understand so many things and they don't even know where to begin. Consider the shock it would be for you if you were suddenly aware that everything you took for granted as true was proven to be wrong. Everything you've been taught from birth was patently false as it applies to this question of of idols and of God. You were an idol-worshipping pagan And you've now become a Christian and everything you've ever been taught has proven to be nothing but ritual. It's ritual and verse and song and it's meaningless and it's pointless. What would that feel like? All the power that you thought these so-called gods possessed, it was never there to begin with. The whole thing was a charade. How does that strike you when you first hear that? All your hopes and all your expectations for what they were going to accomplish for you when you prayed to them or when you sacrificed to them. All of that has shown itself now to be false hope and unmet expectations. You talk about rocking your world. Perhaps there's no greater shock for any human being that they would lose their religion. Now, of course, in their case, it was all for the best because they have now come to know the truth. But in those initial days and weeks and months, as someone has walked this path, Paul is acknowledging, you know, it takes time to come through that process. You can't take someone in the first weeks of their faith and say, "Okay, now that you're a Christian, 
Here's all this new stuff you're supposed to do and just forget all that other stuff. It just doesn't matter anymore. And, and they're just suddenly going to take this leap with you and forget everything they've ever known. It doesn't work that way. Not for most of us. I think this kind of thing happens for those who have finally come to believe and understand that evolution is a lie. I think this is a really good example of what that feels like. For the adult Christian who has always grown up in a world that believes in the lie of evolution, to come through that process out of Scripture and to come out the other side and say to yourself, you know what, it's all a big charade. It is all a house of cards. There's no truth to it, and the world is deceived. Do you understand the shock of that? I know that feeling. I remember that day very clearly. And, and you feel like a fool for being sucked into it. You, you doubt yourself because you wonder, how can anybody be that deceived? How could the world be that deceived? You think about all the smart people who do believe in it, and you wonder, how could they miss it? You, you just go through this process for a while. That's kind of what's happening to them about their entire faith system. Paul says, Christians who live in this vulnerable, infantile state must be of special concern to the rest of us. Not a source of contempt or judgment, but one for care and feeding and concern. We have to consider how they need to be approached in light of their weak conscience. It's not enough for us to say, oh, they should have the same knowledge we have. They should just catch up with us. They should just get over it. It's not kind or it's not loving to do that. It's not kind to expect them to push aside all of that history in an instant and catch up to us. And what's really ironic about that is we didn't do that. We went through a process. We took our time getting somewhere. And yet now the next person is supposed to just jump in, in line with us. I mean, that doesn't make sense. So the first thing is we have to be concerned about how we approach their weakness. Secondly, we must not make the highest priority, our highest priority, the exercising of our liberty or the exhibition of our confidence in our knowledge. We can't make that the highest priority. My chief goal in dealing with another Christian is not to show off how strong I am by my liberties. My chief concern is where they are at in their walk, and then I can form my lifestyle to ease them into where God wants them and not offend their conscience in the process. Paul says in verse 8, We don't commend ourselves to God when we exercise our freedom to eat something. In other words, we don't prove our maturity by what we allow ourselves to do. We prove our maturity in Christ by what we are willing to deny ourselves. The freedom we have in Christ is best exhibited by our willingness to deny ourselves something we know we have rights to out of concern or love for someone else. Not out of self-piety, not out of self-righteousness, but out of a concern for someone else's needs. So who do you say is the more mature Christian in the faith? The one who enjoys, let's say, an alcoholic drink because they know it's permissible under liberty or the Christian who denies himself that privilege out of a concern for the weaker brother. Is it not the one who restrains themselves that is showing greater maturity than the one who would just blindly exercise their freedom? So the measure of our spiritual maturity is not how much we know, but how we put what we know to practice by showing love to others. And in the case of eating meat sacrificed to idols, he says the Corinthians newfound understanding of idols had freed them to eat that meat. Yes, they could eat the meat sacrificed to an idol because of everything Paul just said. We know it was a meaningless ritual anyway. But the decisions that they make in this area impact others in the church. So he says in verse 9, we have to take care not to exercise that liberty in such a way that it becomes a stumbling block for anyone who's weak. And here's the crux of his argument. Here is the central principle in this chapter. 
Paul says the conscience of an immature Christian is weak. Now, what he means by that is not in the pejorative sense. In other words, he's not saying that that's a negative thing in this person's case or something they should be ashamed of. He means it like we would say about, let's say, an 18-month-old child. An 18-month-old child is weak. If I asked them to lift a sack of potatoes, they probably couldn't do it. So we don't expect the 18-month-old to carry the sack, right? It's, it's simple. It's obvious. Well, in a spiritual sense, Paul is saying you have weak consciences in the lives of baby Christians. Treat them appropriately. He calls the conscience of the immature Christian weak because they cannot experience liberty in the same way you and I can without having it defile, he says, defile their conscience. Now, here's what he means. And this is why this is so central to the chapter. Our conscience is like an internal compass directing us convicting us, giving us a help to steer us into righteousness. Now, as you and I grow in spiritual maturity, that compass becomes stronger and more accurate and more discerning about small differences between situations. But in the early days of our walk, that compass is a pretty crude instrument. It's not nearly as discerning as it should be or could be in the future. We can make a comparison, I think, to a situation we can all understand, to a child trying to learn to swim in a pool. The first time you put, let's say, a toddler or let's say someone who's old enough to learn, the first time you put them into a pool, they need a lot of help. And if you don't give them that help, they're going to die. You need to put them in either a life jacket or one of those little floaty things they sit in, or you're going to stand there and hold them the whole time. They're getting acclimated to the water, but you're certainly not letting them go on their own. And as they grow more confident, they're going to graduate to later stages. They're going to be in water wings or they're going to eventually be in the shallow end swimming around and then Finally, one day, they're going to go into the deep end and swim without any help. Well, when you're talking about Christianity and a new Christian, that new Christian is going to explore the limits of what liberty provides, and they're going to have to do that with some help. And that help comes in the form of their conscience and the brothers and sisters they have in the Lord. So if you take a baby Christian and you throw them into a difficult circumstance too early, it's like taking a toddler and starting the swimming lesson by tossing them into the deep end and we'll see what happens. Bad things are going to happen. That's Paul's concern here. So those in the church who understand liberty, who were confident enough in their knowledge of God that they felt they could still go into temples for temple services and eat the meat, treating it just as a restaurant and nothing more. They could buy the meat in the Agora and they could eat it treating it as nothing more than just everyday meat. It wasn't hurting their conscience. They understood it for what it was. They were mature enough to rise above all of those concerns. Those people, he said, were doing things that could hurt others. Because the question is, when they go into the temple or when they buy the food in the market, when they're observed doing that, what is the person observing them thinking? That's the central question. So Paul was asked, is it acceptable to eat this meat? Is it acceptable to enter the temple services? And Paul doesn't respond by saying yes and yes, because Paul knew that that answer would be different depending on who you're talking to and their state of maturity. So instead, he answers with a principle. We may not inflict harm on fellow Christians through a pursuit of our personal liberty. That's the principle. So in verse 10, he says, if one of our weaker brothers observes us dining in the temple, won't they become confused about what is right? They may be strengthened, he says, to eat meat sacrificed to idols. What he means is this. They may be encouraged by our behavior to act against their own conscience. And that's the critical concern. 
Their conscience at that early stage in their walk is telling them something very simple. Stay away from the temple. Stay away from idols. Stay away from anything associated with it. Why? Because that's God's guarding of their heart at an early stage in their walk so as to hold them far away from any of the negative influences of that world while they grow accustomed to being what Christ wants them to be and to avoid any temptation to return to what they used to do. And that makes sense, right? Stay far away from the line. They have this internal compass that says as soon as they walk toward the temple or as soon as they give a thought to eating that meat, an alarm bell goes off in their heart. Don't do that. Don't do that. You know, that's not what you're supposed to do anymore. You've moved past that. You're a Christian now. In the long run, what is better for that person to learn to listen to that or to think it's always wrong and they can override it? Is it better for them to listen to that or is it better for them to override that? You see the problem? If at the same time that alarm's going off, telling them by the conviction of the spirit, because of their immaturity, because of what God is trying to protect them from, if that alarm is telling them to stay away and yet there's Steve and, you know, Steve's a pretty mature guy. He's the pastor. He's the he's the teacher. I mean, if he's going in there, then it's probably okay after all. And if he eats the meat without thinking about it, well, I guess it's I guess it is okay. But but here I am feeling I can't do that. But. You know, maybe this is wrong. And Steve's right. Now, what's ironic in this situation, of course, is that the actual activity itself is not wrong. But that's not Paul's concern. Paul's concern is that if we encourage that new believer to override their conscience and to do what someone else has said is okay, we've taught them a principle that in the long run will get them in big trouble. And that principle or that bigger concern is, do you listen to your conscience or do you not? When you're young in the faith, your conscience will direct you away from things that perhaps later in your walk, your conscience will start to moderate and say, no, it's okay now. But in the meantime, I've learned the conscience is how God will speak to me, at least one of the ways in which God will speak to me to ensure that I follow him. What we want within this body, within everybody, is to encourage our brothers and sisters to know the word of God, to listen to the spirit and obey the convictions God gives them so that they can be directed over time into righteousness. What we don't want is to let our own maturity cause us to model for some younger believer that overriding your conscience is acceptable. We're better to forego eating the meat in the meantime, if necessary, to confirm their conscience and train them up in it. That's why Paul says, you know what? If my approach to my liberty, in the case of meat causes a brother of mine to stumble, then he said, I would rather never eat meat again than be guilty of that kind of thing. That's why Paul says, if you or I, by the exercise of our liberty, cause another brother to stumble, we are guilty of sin against Christ. Why? Because we have not shown love to God or to our brother, to our neighbor. We have loved ourselves more than our neighbor. And to the one who follows us, they themselves have sinned. James says in James 4, 17, To the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is ironic when you think about it. They sin when they go eat the meat sacrificed to idols, not because eating meat is wrong, but because violating your conscience is wrong. So now the issue is no longer about meat, if it ever was. It's about liberty and love. It's about self-restraint and Concern and respect for our weaker brothers and sisters, not about judging them, not about labeling them, but appreciating them in the way we appreciate our children. 
The way we appreciate anyone who needs to learn and is eager to do so. Verse 11, Paul says, we've ruined our brother and sister when we ignore these things. I get it, Steve. I've got to be careful. I don't want to go off and run into something that causes my brother or sister to stumble. But what are the limits on this for me? Am I constrained then by every weak person I ever run into? Are you telling me that I'll basically never be able to enjoy any liberties because there'll always be someone around me who's weaker? There'll always be someone who's trying to figure this out. So basically I have these opportunities, but I can never use them because there'll always be someone watching me. It may seem unfair, right? Well, the answers to that come in chapters 9 and 10. Paul will deal with what it does look like to walk in maturity for the Christian who wants to enjoy a measure of liberty. But he's going to continue to dwell on this fundamental principle that love trumps all of these things. In fact, it will culminate in chapter 13, the one we read in weddings all the time on what love really looks like in the Christian faith. So let's remind ourselves as we leave today, enjoying liberty is not the highest goal in Christian life. Loving God, loving our brothers and sisters, that is the higher goal. And whatever is required to exhibit that to another is our goal. Everything else is secondary. And so we must exercise our liberty and love sensitive to the convictions of others. We'll talk much more about this in the coming weeks as we go through 9 and 10. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you would remind us of our liberty. And I thank you, Father, that you would remind us of our necessity to demonstrate love. Uh, We do thank you, Father, that we can enjoy so many things in life, food and drink, festivals of whatever kind. And we have the freedom to do these things, Father, for you have settled on the cross the demands of the law. And yet, there is the law of love, Father, the law of Christ that has never stopped and never will. The law that says we would love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that we would love our neighbors as we love ourselves. This is the law, Father, that you call us to live every day and in fulfillment of all that you gave to Moses. And I ask, Father, that even though the, the world we live in today won't, put meat in front of us that's been sacrificed to idols. There are so many other ways, Father, in which our conscience can be wounded and and a weak Christian can be ruined. There's so many other liberties that we take for granted that others struggle with. I ask, Father, that you would give each of us a sensitive heart on this issue, that our first concern would be what others feel and think, not ourselves, that we would want to help them along the path of maturing and, and following their conscience and never seek to send them off that path to stumble them in any way. Let us see that our liberty is always subjected to our concern for others. And I thank you, Lord, that in this church we do respect your word. We want to know it. We seek to understand it. But never let us become arrogant, Father, with that knowledge or prideful about it, as if in our accumulation of that knowledge we have met the expectations you have for us here on earth. But see it as a means to an end, Father. Let us see that it sends us somewhere that we can then demonstrate our knowledge in love. That's our goal. Let us have the rest of this week, Father, to relax, to enjoy the season, to be with our friends and family, Father. And I ask you to bring us all back here on Tuesday so we can celebrate Christmas together. We pray this in Jesus' name.